Hello all, warmest welcomes to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that seeks out to recount the usually lesser known and more obscure crimes in the dark history of the UK and Ireland. I'm Paul, I'm the creator and host of the True Crime Enthusiast of the show title, and as always, I'm bowled over having you guys joining me here today. It's so much appreciated, and I thank you very much for doing so. For any new listeners, then hello and welcome, of course, and for the usual suspects, well, it's fantastic to have you rogues here as always. I hope everybody's good and well this week. I am personally, myself, a busy few weeks for the show and now calming down somewhat and it's especially nice to be back each week having a straight run of episodes. Every now and then I think it's necessary to have a bit of a breather though, which is why I do when I'm feeling it or I'm chocker busy with work or real life on top. As I've said before, I take too much pride and I put a lot of work into the show's episodes. I've set a bar for myself and I wouldn't sit comfy with just putting a filler episode out for the sake of hearing my own voice. I enjoy doing the show too much, so I'll never be away for too long. Thank you for all who tuned in and have fed back to me concerning last week's episode of the show, Keeley's Story. A very tragic one, and what a monstrously evil killer Ronald Barton was, I'm sure you'll agree. It certainly was one that struck me somewhat more than others, as I gather that it did some of you guys also. Now whilst I've got empathy for all of those who suffer and are affected by the perpetrators of the cases that I cover on the show, and I'm never fully desensitised at all, every now and again, one of them that I research proper gets to me more than most do. I think Sophie Hook, Mabel Lation, Catherine Gowan, uh, just to name but a few off the top of my head. And Keeley's story definitely is one of those. It goes with the territory we're doing a show such as this does though, and it's not something that will ever put me off. Rather, it will always spur me on to tell these people's stories, because if it strikes me like that, then I hope that it strikes you guys the same, so these forgotten people are remembered. And these are tales that I shall continue to seek out and bring to the table. Thanks also for all of the new follows, shares and reviews for the show this week, as well as a welcome to the latest show Patreon supporters, Leslie Fisher, Vicky Taylor, Hector, Tammy Brassard, Darren McKenna and Jennifer Gracionette. Welcome folks, I hope that I haven't mispronounced anybody's name there. Your support's most kind and appreciated, and I hope that you've enjoyed your bonus Patreon episodes. Now there was a fresh one released just a couple of days ago, and takes the tally up to 14 full-length bonus episodes now for supporters, and that one was a last-minute replacement, as the original planned Patreon episode for March has actually become this week's episode of the show, which we shall of course get to shortly that you're about to hear. And it was a replacement episode that actually turned out better and much more interesting than I initially thought it would do. The feedback for it has been fantastic, and the supporters who've heard it seem to agree, so that's ace as well. For anyone interested in becoming a Patreon supporter of the show, then it's very simple. There are many different tiers available, with, as I said, 14 bonus episodes now available, for less each month than it costs to have two goes on a pub dukey, and there's a new bonus episode released on the first of each month. These are proper varied tales. They range from grisly axe murders to hell's angels, fantasists and forensic firsts to the downright bizarre and kinky. There are all sorts on there. I try to find cases that I'd be interested in hearing as a listener myself. The show can be found by seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site or by using the handy link that is always in the episode show notes alongside the show social media links. It's all very self-explanatory really, so... What are you waiting for? Why don't you head over now and see for yourselves? 
I'd also like to remind you guys that as ever, I'm always open to suggestions for cases for future show episodes, and even more so if you fancy researching and writing one up yourself, then please feel free to get in touch about it. There have been three listener-created episodes so far since I started doing the show, and I love doing them because I'm a big believer in paying stuff forward and giving the people a chance to showcase their work. I mean, who knows what something such as that may bring and inspire somebody to do? I mean, it inspired me to do it. Plus, I'm not some sort of true crime oracle either. There are hundreds of UK cases that I'm not aware of that I get sent by people whose interest these cases have hooked. Perhaps it's a local one to them, or perhaps it's even one that they have a personal connection with. But I'm always approachable about doing these, and I look forward to doing the next one. It's promo time now, and I'm pleased to hand you over to the hosts of another great show that I enjoy this week. I love exploring crimes that are a bit out of my spectrum. I mean, I focus on UK and Ireland-based ones, so I'm always interested in hearing about ones that I'm unfamiliar with from other countries, and I particularly enjoy hearing about Scandinavian ones. Now, I've mentioned Minna at True Crime Finland and Pernilla at True Crime Sweden before on the show, and they've both got fantastic shows that if you don't already listen to, you should go and jump on. But another one that I enjoy from up Scandinavia way is Nordic True Crime, which is a bi-weekly show that encapsules cases looking at all sorts, and to quote the show byline, covers the dark deeds from the frozen north. I'll pass you over to the hosts so they can tell you some more about them and their show. Norway reeling from twin attacks. First, a suspected car bomb... Quick was known as Sweden's worst serial killer. Quick was convicted. Kim Vahl disappeared after boarding Madsen submarine in Copenhagen Harbour last August. Terrorism, miscarriages of justice, serial killers, disappearances. From the known to the lesser known, we give you true crime from the dark and frozen regions of Northern Europe. This is Nordic True Crime. Subscribe to our bi-weekly episodes on iTunes, Spotify or on your podcast provider. And find us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Nordic True Crime. Cheers both, Nordic True Crime there, available from where this show and your other shows that you listen to can be found. Give them a try, I'm sure that you won't be disappointed. Links to this show are in this week's show notes as ever, and they can be found on social media under Guess What Monica. Yeah, Nordic True Crime of course. And Patreon, where I believe that they have a page also. It's a great show and it's well worth checking out if you haven't already. So this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, as I said earlier, the case in question was originally penciled in to be March's Patreon bonus episode, but when I come to proper go down the rabbit hole and research it, I found more than enough that made me think that it should be on the regular show. It's one of the oldest cases, actually I think off the top of my head it may even be the oldest case to date that's been covered on the show, but be warned, this week it is a shocker. It takes us back to the Birmingham district of Edgbaston and almost to the very end of 1959 where a crime so horrific and shocking occurred that it was to disturb, sicken and frighten many and leave more than one hardened police officer off work on sick leave. It really was so disturbing. 
The episode this week deals with the brutal sex murder of a young woman and so contains descriptions of crimes and actions that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, plus a verbatim statement from the killer describing almost in full the murder and subsequent actions. Now as you hopefully know from the True Crime Enthusiast podcast by now, details such as these are not placed in to glorify or sensationalise in any way, they're put in to fully describe the case and glimpse the mindset of someone responsible for such horror. It's really all or nothing, isn't it? But this is a nasty and disturbing one, so please use your discretion. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we head back to 1959 to the Birmingham district of Edgebaston to look at the case I've entitled The Horror in the Hostel. Curved around the southwest of Birmingham city centre, Edgebaston is an affluent suburb probably today most famous for Edgebaston Cricket Ground, which is a test match venue and the home of Warwickshire County Cricket Club, and the University of Birmingham, which is also located there. It was also home in the early 20th century to a teenaged author named J.R.R. Tolkien, and Edgebaston's Towers, the Waterworks Tower and Perrot's Folly are said to have provided the inspirations for the Two Towers part of his Lord of the Rings novel. Now I wasn't too fussed on the films myself, though ITV2 in the UK seemed to love them because you can't go a week, it seems, without at least one film being on based around mystical bloody jewellery. And that's the Wikipedia part of the, this week's episode done now. We all use it, and if you say that you don't, then I think you're fibbing. 20-year-old Margaret Brown lived in Edgebaston in the 1950s, and on Wednesday the 23rd of December 1959, Margaret's thoughts were focused solely on the last Christmas of the decade, which she was to be spending by heading back up to her parents' home in Edinburgh. She'd finished work for the festive holiday break and was just getting the last of her preparations done for her trip, last-minute laundry and washing, in the communal laundry room of her lodgings before leaving via train the next day. At the time, Margaret was one of several women who were staying at Edencroft, a large Georgian-style building that had years before become a YWCA hostel. It no longer exists today, having been removed to make way for more commercial housing in the late 1960s. But in 1959, it was set back off the road in large grounds in the Wheelie Road area of Edgebaston, and the annex of the hostel that Margaret had a room in, room number 7, was the Queen's Wing, a single-storey block located on the ground floor. Being so close to the Christmas break, most of the fellow lodgers at the hostel had already finished work and gone away to their families for the holidays, although that evening there were still a few stragglers left around the hostel, watching television in the shared common room. Margaret was quite focused on getting ready, she didn't want to have a last minute Christmas Eve rush the next day, and was looking forward to an uninterrupted trip home to visit her family and catch up with her friends. Edencroft was a cold building at the best of times, and as the weather that December was particularly cold and damp, as much care as possible had been taken to ensure that all doors and windows were kept secured to retain the building's heat. So when at about 7.15pm, Margaret felt a sudden cold draught coming from the adjoining wash house to where she was ironing, she went to investigate. It was definitely that noticeable. Putting the iron down, she walked into the wash house and noticed that the chill was coming from the outside door, which for some reason was ajar. Chiding whoever had been careless enough to leave it open in such cold weather, Margaret shut the door and returned to her ironing. 
A short time later, she again felt a cold draught, this time preceded by the unmistakable sound of the outside door latch. So back once again to the washhouse she went and found the door once again open. Thinking that she probably hadn't closed it properly herself before and the wind had caught it and blown it ajar again, she once again shut it firmly and this time made a purpose of shutting the glass panel door that separated both rooms as well. Then she continued with her ironing. After a few minutes, a short time after 7.30pm, Margaret heard the door latch click once again, and this time the lights also went out. Perturbed and somewhat startled by the sudden darkness, Margaret cautiously made her way towards the closed inner door, but she hesitated when as her eyes become accustomed to the darkness, she spotted a figure stood at the other side of the door, silhouetted through the glass. She called out who's there, but received no answer. Opening the door, Margaret suddenly became aware of the presence of a male figure stood in front of her slightly to her right. She was only to get a brief glimpse of the man before seconds later, he struck Margaret with a heavy blunt weapon. Now, although the blow had dazed Margaret, it hadn't been enough to cause her to lose consciousness. Luckily, due to the depth and density of the bun that she was wearing in her hair, cushioning the blow. The shock and fright of the assault and the force of the blow, though, made Margaret scream loudly. And as she staggered along the corridor to raise the alarm in the common room, her assailant fled silently into the darkness of the outside courtyard. Police were called at 7.44pm and two officers were at the scene within minutes, and as Margaret's injuries, fortunately not too severe, were tended to ahead of the ambulance that had also been called, a cursory search of the hostel and its grounds were made. However, the assailant had long since fled, it appeared. Margaret had managed to give a brief account of what had happened, and a basic description of her assailant from the fleeting glimpse that she'd gained of the man before he'd struck her, but this could offer very little. All she could remember was that her assailant was a dark-haired man in his mid to late twenties with a rugged complexion and a well-defined chin. In the wash house, a large stone was found that had been taken from the rockery in the grounds of the hostel, nearby to a discarded bra. The stone, which weighed six and a half pounds, had been wrapped in the bra to form some sort of makeshift cosh, and it was this that Margaret had been struck with, the assailant discarding the weapon as he fled from the scene. A check was made with the other girls living in the hostel to determine if they'd seen or heard anything suspicious, and a more thorough search of the premises now got underway. Perhaps the intruder was still on the premises or grounds. No one reported hearing or seeing anything out of the ordinary though, and as all the rooms were systematically checked and cleared, the only room left that hadn't been investigated it remained was room number four a dormitory room on the ground floor of the Queen's Wing that was occupied by a 29-year-old shorthand typist named Stephanie Baird. According to the other women that were spoken to, Stephanie hadn't yet left the hostel for the holidays, and as the door was found to be locked from the inside, it was reasonable to assume that Stephanie was in. However, no amount of banging and shouting from police officers provided a response, so officers decided to try to see into the room from outside. Heading around to the ground floor window of room 4, they saw the curtains were drawn, but a slight chink in the middle afforded them enough to spy inside the small dormitory room. All that could be made out through the gap when officers did so was a woman's motionless legs lying on the floor alongside the bed. 
Immediately, the door to room four was forced open, but neither of the police officers at the scene could have expected, in their worst nightmares, what they were to find once it was. One almost immediately went and vomited, and the other went into deep shock and was to be off duties for several weeks. The sight that met them was as follows. Clearly dead, Stephanie's naked body lay on the floor parallel with her bed. The entire scene was heavily bloodstained from the bed to the carpet, it was everywhere. A broken and bloodstained table knife lay nearby, alongside a small bloodstained pair of scissors. Stephanie's body had been savagely and extensively mutilated, including one of her breasts having been sliced off and discarded on the floor beside it. But the worst mutilation, the sight that shocked police officers to the core, was that Stephanie had been decapitated and her head placed on the bed in the room. You wouldn't never ever forget that, would you? Detective Chief Superintendent James Horton of the Birmingham CID was placed in charge of the murder investigation that was immediately launched, and his first act was to swiftly place immediate roadblocks around the Edgebaston area. The maniac who had committed this grisly crime had to have been drenched in blood and therefore would likely need to flee the area quickly, and whilst the stop and search operation at the roadblocks was launched for such a suspect, forensic experts began to examine the murder scene and a search of the surrounding areas got underway, looking for discarded blood-stained clothing or a murder weapon. Horton looked at the immediate evidence from the crime scene. The murder weapon was later determined to have been the simple ivory-handled table knife, the blood-stained blade of which had broken off in the savage assault. No fingerprints were found around the ground floor windows or at the crime scene, but outside the window of Stephanie's room, there was a size 11 footprint in the soil of the flowerbed, a print with a distinctive transverse crossbar pattern on it. A search of the premises then revealed muddy footprints matching this pattern on a blanket that had been left on the windowsill of neighbouring room 6 placed there by the room's occupant to keep out the rain and to prevent the build-up of condensation. It was clear that the killer had gained entry to the building by climbing in through this unlocked window. Although pictures from the scene available through online searches show it to be an open courtyard with little shrubbery or foliage to hide in, on a dark December evening and long before the onset of CCTV, it would have been an attractive prospect. It was out of sight at the rear of the building and it was on the ground floor so it was within easy reach. Once inside, the killer had somehow accosted, attacked and horrifically murdered Stephanie and had then attempted to kill Margaret afterwards before fleeing. A diary was found in Stephanie's room but it had not been regularly filled in and it wasn't to provide any useful information. But a note was also found in the room that police paid much more attention to. Placed on the dressing table was a scrap of paper with a message written in biro in scrawled handwriting. This is the thing I taught would never come. Horton presumed that the strange note had been left by the killer because it didn't match Stephanie's handwriting and for the time being this detail was decided to be kept back from the media by police. It was to prove crucial later in the investigation though. Had someone targeted Stephanie deliberately? Such violence and defilement would suggest someone with a personal motive or a grudge against her, and her background was looked at to see if a likely suspect jumped out at police. But this provided police with absolutely nothing. 
Sydney Stephanie Beard was the elder daughter of Scottish and Welsh parents who'd been educated at Cheltenham Grammar School, where she'd done very well and particularly enjoyed studying the serious classic British literature. When she left school, she first found a job at the municipal offices in Cheltenham before becoming a shorthand typist at a local brickmaking firm. Although a well-educated, attractive woman, Stephanie was shy and insecure and preferred reading and leading a quiet life to having boyfriends and going out dancing. Following the death of her father in 1957, Stephanie's mother remarried a man named Edgar Wright, and in 1958, Stephanie decided on a fresh start for herself also, moving across to Birmingham and taking a new job and lodgings there. She wrote to her mother regularly and managed to get home to visit or at least meet up with her mother most weekends. And then sadly, Stephanie was to suffer a nervous breakdown after being made redundant from the firm that she'd found work with. After receiving a period of treatment at the Midlands Nerve Hospital and some time convalescing, Stephanie had recovered enough to be able to move into a room at the Wheelies Road YWCA in Edgebaston and once again found work as a shorthand typist at a local firm. Always friendly and liked by the other girls she both worked and lived with, Stephanie still chose to live a quiet life, having no boyfriend and seemingly content to socialise with the television in the common room or happily pass the evening reading alone in her room. There seemed to be no reason whatsoever for her to have been targeted for such a horrific death. As news of Stephanie's murder spread through the hostel and the local area and it filtered back to the girls who lived there who were away for the holidays, a young teacher who'd been staying there realised with growing horror that nine months before, she'd most likely that evening been the luckiest woman in Britain because she'd likely had a brush with the same killer. One cold evening in March 1959, the young woman was dozing off in her bed in her room in the Queen's Wing when a door suddenly opened, the light was switched on, and a man was stood in the doorway before he stepped into her room. Dark-haired and in his mid to late twenties, he said to her, Hello, I'm looking for Kathleen Ryan. Now the young woman, knowing that there was no one of that name living there and it was a strict rule that men were not allowed in the hostel, tried to keep calm and asked him how he'd gotten in, to which he replied, I came in through the window. Staring at her naked body through the shape of her nightdress, the man moved towards the bed but stopped when the woman told him she was engaged to be married and suggested that he really should be going. Surprisingly, and undoubtedly to her relief, the man did make to go when she told him this, and to ensure that he went, the woman left her bed and told him to follow her down the corridor, where she led him to the front door, opened it, and let him out. When the man was gone and the door was secured, and her windows, obviously, the woman contacted police. It was the second time in as many months that police had been contacted to attend the hostel based on reports of a male intruder. Late one evening in January 1959, two residents there had caught a dark-haired man hanging about on the stairs inside the building at about midnight, although he left the premises sharpish when he was challenged as to his purpose there. He was to be back for a third time some months later though. Police carried out house-to-house inquiries and questioned every male who lived in the immediate vicinity of the hostel. Over 20,000 people in the area were spoken to from a carefully pre-prepared questionnaire and the answers that were given were scrutinised and rechecked carefully. 
Detective Chief Superintendent Horton believed that the killer was a local man and so would have been spoken to, and he checked up on previously known voyeuristic peeping toms, those with convictions for indecency, assault or any sex crimes who also fell within this pool. Persons with a history of mental illness in the area were looked at, and thousands of butchers and abattoir workers from all over the Midlands were also checked up on as it was considered that Stephanie had so skillfully been decapitated and mutilated with a simple table knife, no less, that a killer must have had experience in handling a knife. But all of these were eventually to be eliminated from the inquiry alongside two men who falsely confessed to the murder. A massive media campaign was launched appealing for any information, although due to the newspapers closing for the Christmas holidays there was a delay in this, but when it did come, for a time it focused upon tracing one crucial person of interest. As a result of the initial roadblocks that had been put in place as soon as Stephanie's body had been discovered and the murder hunt launched, a bus conductor named Bill Humphreys on the number 8 Inner Circle Line bus from Balsall Heath to Aston, which had headed past the Wheelies Road area, told police that about 8pm on the evening of the murder, a man answering the general description of Margaret's assailant had gotten onto the bus near to the YWCA. The passenger had blood on his hands and sleeves and all down the front of his jacket, and it had actually dripped onto the seat that he had sat on. Bill told police that the man appeared to be in some sort of daze, and after he'd offered sixpence for his fare, he'd not spoken despite being asked for his destination. Instead, he'd just shuffled over to the fourth seat from the front on the near side of the top deck of the bus, sat down and just stared straight ahead like a statue. Some of the other passengers, and they were estimated to be about 60 on the bus in total, had spoken to the conductor about the strange man and the man himself about him being covered in blood, but he had completely avoided their questioning before getting off at the bus terminus and walking away. The bus was subsequently recalled and the bloodstained seat was found and taken away for a forensic examination, where the heavy bloodstaining was indeed found and it was revealed that the blood was of Group O. Now this was the same blood group as Stephanie's granted, but it was also the most common blood group, and as we say often here on the show, it was long before the discovery of DNA profiling. Meanwhile, when the appeal was made for people on the bus to come forward, perhaps the delay in reporting the crime to a broader audience, plus the Christmas festivities in between, had unfortunately clouded people's minds, as this failed to bring anything of real use in, and police had little joy in tracing the passengers on the bus that evening, as well as the bloodstained man. So in the end, Detective Chief Superintendent Horton made what was thought to be the first televised police appeal for information following a major crime, and a popular TV holiday programme named Let's Go was interrupted whilst the appeal for passengers on the number 8 Inner Circle Birmingham bus on the evening of the murder to come forward was made. Detective Chief Superintendent Horton stressed the importance of catching this killer in a nod that Nick Ross himself would have been more proud of than anything, I'm sure, telling viewers, this is a most dangerous man, he's committed a most brutal murder and attacked another girl after that. Who knows what he may do next. Apart from frightening people in the Edgebaston area further with this, the televised appeal was groundbreaking, but it didn't bring the response police were hoping for. Only 10 of the passengers who'd been on the bus at the time were ever traced or came forward, 
and police eventually decided to rule the bloodstained man out of the inquiry, they felt that he was too bloodstained. Stephanie's killer would have been so dripping with blood that an obvious trail to the bus stop leading from the YWCA would have been found, and as there was no such trail discovered, they deduced that Stephanie's killer must have changed clothing before mutilating the body. The bloodstained man, whoever he was, was never identified. It was now decided to widen the investigation and lines of inquiry, and on the 5th of January 1960, Detective Inspector Stan Arnott, the head of West Midlands Police Criminal Records Office, spent over a week trawling through the crime files held at London's New Scotland Yard, returning to the murder incident room with details of 25 suspects that he considered police should look more closely at as possible killers. Whilst these were checked and one by one ruled out, other lines of inquiry were also looked at. Just before the murder, a book entitled The Identity of Jack the Ripper had been published, and the local library near to the YWCA hostel had no less than eight copies of the book. At the same time, local cinemas were showing a film about the very same subject, so could the book of the film of the gory subject have inspired Stephanie's killer to go out and commit a similar atrocity of their own? Inquiries were made to find out who'd borrowed copies of the book, but this led nowhere, as did the attempts to trace all of the people who had attended the many performances of the film shown. It's an impossible task. By the time several weeks had passed since Stephanie's murder, police were still no closer to catching a killer, and a real sense of terror still hung over the area. All women's hostels in Edgebaston were guarded by police, Locksmiths and pet stores did a roaring trade, and women were encouraged to go everywhere in pairs or trios. Efforts were redoubled to catch the maniac, for there's no other word to describe someone who'd commit such horror and defilement is there really. What else do you call them? With police extremely worried that this maniac would strike again. All statements that had been taken already in the investigation were checked and then rechecked and the 300 or so men who had been reported as not having returned either to their lodgings or to work following the Christmas break were now spoken to. There was a backlog of these because there'd been so many away all over the country over the Christmas holidays, and then of course police efforts had been focused primarily on tracing the bloodstained bus passenger, so it was some weeks after the murder that police proper got to working through the people who'd been away and hadn't been spoken to initially. Stephanie's killer could be one of these. Among the names on this list was one Patrick Joseph Byrne, a 28-year-old Irish labourer who'd been working at a tarmac place nearby at the time of the murder and staying in lodgings at 93 Islington Row, which was only about 400 yards from the murder hostel. He'd given his landlady notice that he was leaving and he wasn't expected back, and he was free from suspicion because he'd left a forwarding address as being with his mother in Birchall Street in the Cheshire town of Warrington. Byrne was contacted up there on 9th of February 1960 and was asked to call into Warrington Police Headquarters to give a routine statement about his movements on the 23rd of December 1959 to eliminate him from the inquiry. Byrne complied with this, and upon arrival there, Detective Sergeant George Wellborn interviewed him and explained about the ongoing inquiries into Stephanie's murder and asked Byrne to account for his movements on the night in question. As Sergeant Wellborn went through the questionnaire with him, 
he noticed that whilst Byrne appeared rational and answered most of the questions no problem, there was the odd question where he appeared nervous and slightly upset by answering. Now, whilst there was nothing glaring in this, I mean, perhaps many people would find an interview situation such as that stressful and Byrne had consented to giving his police his fingerprints, Sergeant Wellborn still thought that Byrne was holding something back and there was just something not quite right about this fella. At the end of the interview, Sergeant Wellborn added, almost sounding a cursory question, but a deliberately testing one. Have you anything to add about your time in Birmingham? There was a few seconds silence in the room, and then Byrne replied, I want to tell you about the YWCA. I had something to do with that. I can't sleep. It's been on my mind, and I was coming down to see the police anyway. These last seven weeks have been no good to me. Byrne was then immediately cautioned before he proceeded to make a chilling statement regarding his actions on the night of December the 23rd, 1959. Detective Chief Superintendent Horton was informed and arrangements to bring Byrne down to Birmingham were made and when he arrived at Birmingham Speedwell Road Police Station at about 3.30am on the 10th of February, he was immediately cautioned and re-arrested by West Midlands Police. Detective Chief Superintendent Horton told Byrne, We understand you have made a statement to Warrington Police to the effect that you killed a girl at the YWCA hostel in Wheelies Road. This is a very serious matter and we intend to detain you until we can check up on your movements on Wednesday, December the 23rd. He was then cautioned again to which Byrne responded to Detective Chief Superintendent Horton, I can't get it off my mind. I want to tell you all that I can. I can draw you the room and everything in it, even how I got into the cubicle. I suppose you found the note that I left. I must tell you everything and get it off my mind. I don't know why I didn't come to see you before. This has been worrying me tremendously. Byrne was handed several sheets of paper, where from memory he made an accurate sketch of the layout of Stephanie's room at the hostel, depicting accurately the position of the furniture and the position of the body and where the various body parts had been left. If you check the show's Instagram after the episode, you'll see the sketch that Byrne drew. On another sheet, he drew a full and accurate layout of the entire ground floor of the Queen's Wing of Edencroft, marking clearly Stephanie's room, the room through which he had entered, and the position of the laundry room where he had attacked Margaret. Byrne was then asked to give samples of his handwriting and signature, and to replicate the words on the note that he claimed to have left, to which Byrne replied, Yes, I cannot remember the exact words on the note, but I will write what I think I wrote. He then proceeded to write this ten times, all of which were nearly word perfect for the note that had been found in the room, complete with the incorrect spelling of the word thought. He wrote taut. Byrne then went on to make a statement about the murder that shocked and sickened detectives, and once he was done, he was charged with the murder of Stephanie Baird. Byrne appeared at Birmingham Aziz's on 23rd of March 1960, where he pleaded guilty to the murder indictment that was read out in court. The all-male jury was then told by Mr John Hobson QC, opening for the Crown, the story that you will hear is one of horror and bestiality such as one would never hope to dream about in one's worst nightmare. Byrne spoke only to confirm his name and plea during the seven-hour proceedings and showed no emotion whatsoever as his statement to police concerning the murder was then read out to the jury. 
which contained the following disturbing descriptions of the attack and murder, so once again discretion is advised. The statements repeated here as in as full detail as available, and it's reproduced again as I said, not to sensationalise or shock, but because it's necessary to highlight the horrific actions of burning full. I worked at Tarmac's in Hagley Road facing St Chad's Hospital until about 1 o'clock that Wednesday. Then I went to the Ivy Bush pub in Hagley Road. I went with Paddy Duffy and two Scots chaps and an Irishman I didn't know. We had a drinking session there leaving just before 3 o'clock and then we all went back to the site. All of us went to the hut and there was some card playing and a lot of shouting and bawling. I was drunk as from dinner time and the foreman got me off and ordered me off the scaffolding. It was about 4.45pm when I left the job, dilly-dallied on the way home and I remember finishing up in Wheelies Road near the YWCA. I know the hostel there because I don't live far away. I saw a girl turn into the gate so I stopped at the front drive and looked up at the windows. Some of them were alight. I thought I would like to have a peep through a window. I've done this a few times before. The night I killed that girl in the cubicle I went in through the front drive and into the grounds. There was only one light on in the bedrooms in the block of cubicles, so I looked through the bedroom which had the light on in the block of cubicles and I saw a girl in there wearing a red pullover and underskirt. She was combing her hair. I only watched for a few seconds and decided to have a better peep from the inside. I went around the back and found a little window open a bit. Byrne then went on to explain how once inside he'd found a chair and had placed it outside the door of room 4, Stephanie's room, and had stood on it to look through the glass panel above her door, hoping that she would undress further. He claimed that he became browned off when she didn't do so, and as he got down to leave, Stephanie heard the chair move and opened the door to confront him. Byrne's statement continued. The door opened suddenly and the woman caught me. I didn't speak and she asked me what I was doing. I told her I was looking for somebody and she said, let me get the warden. We were standing quite close together then and just as I was going to run, as I turned my arm touched her breast. This got me excited and I got hold of her breasts. I said, give me a kiss and before she could say no I kissed her. She tried to shove me away but couldn't and for a second I got her around the waist. She only had her underskirt on and I felt her very close. I was feeling her all over and kissing her, but she screamed and then I put my hands around her neck. She went backwards inside the room with me squeezing her throat and then fell backwards. Her head bounced off the floor and I was lying on top of her kissing her and squeezing her neck at the same time. I heard a couple of small noises in her throat and kept on kissing her. I was lying on top of her alongside the bed with our heads near the dressing table. After a while, I knelt up and had a strong urge to have a good look at her. I was fully sure she was dead because I had the whole power of my back squeezing her throat. I pulled her towards me and pulled the red jumper off her and threw it to one side. I lay on top of her and did various things after that. I seemed to be in a hurry to do everything to her and hadn't had the patience. I got up then, panting and moaning, and bolted the door. I took my trousers and jacket and shirt off and I was naked apart from my shoes and socks. I rolled all over her, her underclothes were all around her waist. 
After describing his necrophiliac acts and acts of defilement to Stephanie's corpse in his account, the full extent of which was so disturbing that they've never fully been publicly revealed, Burns' statement continued, I got tired of that. Looking up, I could see the dressing table cupboard door open. There was a table knife in there. I looked at it for a couple of seconds, then I got it in my right hand. I caught hold of her right breast and carved the knife around it. It was hard to cut around the skin, but in the end, I got it off. I was very surprised and disappointed because it came away flat in my hand. I just looked at it and then flung it towards the bed. After committing more disturbing mutilation upon Stephanie's chest, including pouring sugar on her other breast in an attempt to cannibalise it, which he soon abandoned, a detail which was only revealed many years later, Byrne went on to describe how he decapitated her. I started on the back of the neck then, catching hold of her hair and pulling her head close to my bare chest. I kept cutting away and I remember now that the knife broke off close to the handle when I was cutting down his stomach and I carried on afterwards with the blade. This part seems a bit blurry but I think I had something wrapped around part of the blade while I used it. It surprised me how easily the head came off and it's been puzzling me as to why I did it. It's not connected with sex in all the books that I've read but I can understand the breast. I can remember when the head came off I had it by the hair and I stood up. I held it up to the mirror and looked at it through the mirror. I've forgotten to tell you that just after I'd done some of the mutilations I stood up and wrote a note with a biro on some paper on the dressing table. I can't remember the exact words I used but I wanted everybody to see my life in one little note. The other times I'd been definitely satisfied with just peeping, but this time was different somehow. What I meant when I wrote this note was that I might be had for rape, but not for murder. It took between 15 to 30 minutes for Byrne to commit the full extent of his dreadful mutilations. He even continued with just the blade when the simple table knife handle snapped off halfway through removing Stephanie's head. Eventually Byrne had redressed and had left room 4 through the window, but was nowhere near finished with his bloodlust. He continued, I was pretty frantic, I was very excited, breathing heavy, and thinking that I ought to terrorise all the women. I wanted to get my own back on them for causing my nervous tension through sex. I headed around the back and found another woman. She attracted me and I felt I only wanted to kill beautiful women. I watched her for a while and stood close to the window. I only looked at her face and the urge to kill her was tremendously strong. I thought I would take her quickly and quietly and picked up a big stone from the garden. I think I first got a brassier from a clothesline and then wrapped it around the stone. Byrne had then gone into the courtyard and prepared to attack Margaret, for it was her who he'd seen, but an elderly woman had come out with a bucket and had disturbed him, causing him to hide in the shadows and wait until she returned into the house. Following this, he had entered the house through the washroom and had turned off the lights, then had swung his homemade cosh and struck Margaret when she'd come out and called to see who was there. When the blow failed to knock her unconscious and she screamed, Byrne had fled. He ran back to his lodgings at 93 Islington Row, which was only 400 yards from the hostel, and cleaned himself up, saying, I stood by the mirror in the bathroom talking to myself and searching my face for signs of a madman, but I could see none. 
After changing his clothes, Byrne then claimed he thought of committing suicide and sat down to begin a confession letter to his mother and family, part of which went, Dear Mum and Boys, I'm very sorry you'll have to receive this horrible letter. Like Jock had two personalities, I must be the same, one very bad and the other the real me. Byrne then abandoned this letter, placed it into his pocket and contemplated suicide, but could not go through with it. He told police, I thought of my mother at Christmas and I didn't want to upset anybody at Christmas, so I decided to wait until the new year. All heart there, eh? What the hell do you think Stephanie's family would have done? Dr Perry Coates, the senior medical officer at Birmingham Prison, where Byrne had been held on remand, told the court that Byrne's intelligence was slightly below average and then after talking to him, his conclusion was that Byrne was a sexual psychopath with an abnormality of mind and impaired mental responsibility, saying, I think he knew what he was doing and that what he was doing was wrong. I think his sexual emotions took complete control of him at the time. Bit of an understatement there, surely? Mr Justice Stable presiding asked Dr Coates if he meant that there was nothing wrong with Byrne's mind except the depraved desires that he surrendered to, to which Dr Coates agreed. Dr James O'Reilly was next to testify, the medical superintendent of All Saints Hospital and one of several medical personnel to examine Byrne after his arrest. He told the court that Byrne had a long history of gross sexual abnormality and had admitted to him during consultations that beginning from the age of 17, but increasingly so in the preceding five years, he'd had dreams and disturbing thoughts of doing sexual things to women which frightened him greatly, but also greatly excited and aroused him. His fantasies included putting a woman through a circular saw, with him pushing her body through while she was still alive, and he would regularly masturbate to this fantasy. Yeah, hmm. Echoing Dr Coates, Dr O'Reilly agreed that he thought Byrne was suffering from an abnormality of the mind. Dr Frederick Griffiths, a home office pathologist, next gave evidence to the court about examining the body both at the scene and the resulting post-mortem. He told how when he first examined Stephanie's body, she was lying on her back on the floor, her head severed at the base of the neck. The blade of an ordinary table knife wrapped in a blood-stained handkerchief, was found under a blood-stained pink underslip on the body, and a knife handle, which was also blood-stained, lay on the floor near to it. It had been this instrument, Dr Griffiths said, that had been used to sever both Stephanie's breast and her head. Also near the foot of the bed was a small but sharp pair of scissors, later determined to have been another instrument that had caused extensive mutilation to Stephanie's body. Cause of death was given as asphyxiation, meaning that mercifully, Stephanie was dead before the dreadful mutilation and sexual defilement of her body began. Questioned about the severing of her head, Dr Griffiths replied, I think he must have been extraordinarily lucky without any knowledge of the matter. I would expect it to take an ordinary man between 15 minutes and half an hour with luck. Now, I mean, bloody hellfire, right? There's just something about people inflicting mutilations such as these that is extra chilling with any murder anyway, isn't it? I think back to the likes of people we've already met on the show, such as 
Danilo Vestivo, Matthew Hardman and Christopher May and the absolute horrors that they did to their victims. But this guy, this is something else, isn't it? It really is. What kind of deranged mind is so hell-bent on defiling a person that they spend a minimum of more than 15 minutes hacking their head off with a simple table knife? It's just unreal, that, isn't it? It's unreal. Evidence was next given by various police officers concerned with the investigation, as well as other residents of the Islington Row House concerning a pair of shoes that were discovered and identified as belonging to Byrne. The court heard how a few days after Patrick Byrne had left his Edgebaston lodgings to go to his mother's house in Warrington, his room at the house at 93 Islington Row was cleared out, and some clothing that he'd left and a pair of black shoes included, found in the room, were placed next to the outside bin in the backyard. A binman picked these shoes up, and as luck would have it, he kept them in the cab of his lorry for several weeks after this. He still had them when Bernard confessed to the murder of Stephanie Baird, and was able to hand them over to police for comparison with the casts that had been taken from the flower bed at the YWCA hostel, and the marks that had been left on the blanket on the windowsill. The size 11 rubber-soled shoes were looked at, and even from a glance the soles appeared similar to those found at the crime scene, but when they were trodden in sand for a comparison cast to be made, the cast taken from this was found to be identical in size, shape and wear pattern with the casts taken from the crime scene. So after committing murder and performing his ghoulish necrophiliac acts, plus attempting to murder another woman, Bernard fled the 400 yards back to his lodging house and changed out of his clothes and the shoes. He drafted the suicide note but opted against it because he didn't want to upset his mother at Christmas time. That must be up there with getting Lynx Africa or something like that. And he decided instead to go back out drinking with his cousin Joseph Ryan and another man, Michael Keeley, who were also in rooms at the same lodging house. This was about 8.30pm. By 10.30pm, Byrne was back at the lodgings with his cousin and Keeley, where he asked his landlady, May Jeans, if he could stay an extra night than he'd agreed, as he'd drunk too much to travel back to his mother's house in Warrington that evening. His landlady had agreed to this and had offered Byrne his old room, room number 5 back, which he had headed to to stay. The dark forces in his mind, instead of encouraging him, now began to torment him, and Byrne claimed later that he was so disturbed by what he'd done, he was afraid to sleep alone, and had so slept in with his cousin. The following morning, at 7.30am, he'd left Edgebaston for his mother's house, leaving the key to number 5 with Michael Keeley, and telling him that he'd left some working clothes there that may be of some good to you. He clearly wasn't intending to return. When he had left, Keeley had headed up to room 5 and looked in Byrne's wardrobe, where he found some dusty and muddy working clothes and a mud-stained pair of black shoes. He didn't take any of these and he locked room 5, passing the key back to Joseph Ryan. Keeley was later to identify the same pair of shoes in court at Byrne's committal hearing. The court also heard how Byrne knew about the note left by the killer in Stephanie's bedroom, even though this had been held back by police as is standard with any investigation. They will, of course, always hold back information known only to them and the killer to weed out any false confessions and eliminate suspects, as they had done with at least two people before Byrne confessed. 
as a further test to his already open and damning statement in which he'd confessed fully, plus the accurate sketches of the layout of Room 4 and the position of Stephanie's body he'd provided for memory, samples of Burns' handwriting were taken after his arrest and given to a forensic graphologist, who made a comparison of these with the note left by the killer at the murder scene. He confirmed that the writing was so similar that in his professional opinion, it was most likely to have been written by the same man. Seeking a verdict under Section 2 of the Homicide Act, Burns' defence counsel, Mr R.K. Brown QC, told the jury, In my submission there has been called before you medical evidence, most compelling evidence, and you cannot possibly shirk from accepting that this is the case of a man who comes clearly within the terms of that particular section of the Homicide Act. This means, in terms of your verdict, that he would be guilty of manslaughter, not murder. The prosecution countered by telling the jury that they were not bound to accept the medical evidence and that doctors could only give their opinions, the ultimate decision being theirs, the jury's. Because Bernard pleaded guilty to the murder of Stephanie Baird, the ultimate outcome was never in question. It was only his degree of culpability in the crime that had to be decided at his trial. After only a 45-minute deliberation following the hearing, the jury found Patrick Byrne guilty of the murder of Stephanie Baird and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. He escaped the noose for his horrific crimes based on his mental capacity. The case did go to the Court of Appeals shortly afterwards where the murder conviction was quashed and replaced by a verdict of manslaughter. It didn't change the life sentence that Byrne had received and Byrne was to spend more than 33 years in prison being released in 1993 at the age of 62. By that time his mental health had further deteriorated and in 1999 he was recalled to prison to continue serving his sentence where he was to die at 74 years old in Manchester's Moss Side Secure Psychiatric Special Hospital in 2005. So what is in someone's mindset that they end up committing such horrors as Burns? Patrick Joseph Byrne was born to Elizabeth and Joseph Byrne in Dublin in 1932, the second son of what would ultimately develop into a large, mixed, strict Catholic family. He was much closer to his mother than his father, who was by all accounts strict and overbearing, a common childhood trait found in many adult sadists. The inability to identify with an overbearing parent that's in contrast to the other who may be pathologically overprotective of the child, may be keeping him or her away from playmates and making them solely reliant on their company. Peter Sutcliffe is a prime example of this, and that son of a gun needs absolutely no introduction, does he? Little is known about Byrne's early years, merely that he was curly-haired, small for his age, and was also of an extreme nervous and shy disposition. Having a slightly below-average IQ, he also had poor literacy skills and this made him a frequent target of the strict disciplinarian teachers of the era. In class, Byrne remained pretty much a passive-aggressive loner and he struggled academically, although he was creative and showed a tendency and flair for art in particular. He also had evidence of a serious childhood head injury, yet another common factor when looking back at some the lives of some of the people who grow up to commit the worst crimes imaginable as when he was eight years old, Byrne was brought to hospital in an unconscious state after a wall fell on him. 
It left him with a broken leg and he was unconscious for three full days after being hospitalised. As Byrne moved into his teens, he found it impossible to interact with the opposite sex, although he increasingly fantasised about sex with them, fantasies that adapted a crueler and more sadistic nature as he matured in years. Leaving school in 1946, aged 14, he found work in a factory and began drinking heavily, but he'd remained desperately shy and even when he was dragged out to different events by relatives, he tended to sit in a corner keeping his own company. At 17, Byrne lost his virginity to a recently widowed, much older woman, a sexual relationship that continued, but one that he didn't seem altogether comfortable or happy with. Byrne would later claim to psychiatrists that he believed this to be the start of all of his problems, as he himself called them. His religious upbringing may have caused him to see the relationship as an abusive or even a wrong one, and he hinted as much to a friend that he told his mother about it, but she'd refused point blank to intervene. He began to believe that his older lover had put some sort of spell on him and had ruined him for girls of his own age, yet bizarrely he turned this around to be the fault of the opposite sex. Byrne began to increasingly hate younger attractive women who he saw as the source of all of his nervous tension and it was about this time that he began developing his sadistic masturbatory fantasies involving women and circular sores, that kind of thing, you know. There's no copy of razzle and quick relax in a gentleman's way for this dude, not unless it involved extreme sadism and violent murder. His criminal career began at around the same time also, starting though with lesser crimes such as trespassing, being drunken disorderly and three counts of housebreaking, although no crimes of a sexual nature. Burns still remained of a shy nature in public and two years national service in the Royal Army Ordnance Corps did nothing to alter this. It didn't bring him out of his shell in any way but was unremarkable with nothing untoward to report throughout his service career. By the late 1950s, with his mother now a widow as his father had died some years previously, Byrne's mother Elizabeth decided to make a fresh start and relocated herself and her tribe of children to England, settling in the town of Warrington in Cheshire, place I'm off to actually next weekend, it happens, to catch up with an old mate of mine we've not seen for ages so we can have a rock of beer and go and watch the coral. Sounds pretty good, eh? The move wasn't the fresh start that this could have been for Byrne, as by age 26 he still lived with his mother and he didn't have a steady girlfriend. The nearest he came was when he was introduced to an 18-year-old girl at a work social club and he met her there on a number of occasions. Although he remained courteous and never made a pass at her whatsoever, insisting on just walking her home because he warned her that bad men may rape or hurt her. He talked of such potential acts to her time and time again, and the girl, Jean Grant, said of him later, I thought he was a smashing fellow, one of the nicest I've ever met. I first met him at Housey Housey schools on Thursday nights in our works canteen. At the time I was going out with a mate of his, but Patrick asked if he could walk me home. He only took me three times and was a thorough gentleman. Sometimes we'd stop for a drink, but he'd never get fresh. He was always worried about losing his sleep. On the way home, that was all he talked about. Sometimes I told him to catch his bus home to get his precious sleep and I'd walk on alone, but he always replied, I couldn't do that, someone might jump out in the dark and attack you. Then he'd go home and think about putting Jean through a circular saw while she was still alive. I mean, 
How chilled must she have been when she heard about his crimes? Bloody hell. On the flip side of being the perfect gentleman, Burns' true colours kept ever bursting through. In January 1958, he received a two-month prison sentence for drunkenly assaulting a police officer, and a few months later was drinking in a pub in Warrington with friends when the landlord refused to serve him further alcohol as he was clearly drunk and disorderly. In a fury about this, Burns screamed at the top of his voice, Give us the drinks or I'll knife you, which doesn't tend to sway a landlord around really, and the party was ejected while most of the party was to leave okay. Byrne was so fixated by fury that he stared maniacally at the landlord and was holding onto the bar top so tightly that it took three of his friends to prise his fingers loose. And then, of course, there was his voyeurism. It's unknown exactly when and where his peeping Tom activities began. Now, I'd be inclined to think that it was whilst he was still living in Ireland as a youngster but when he moved over to First Warrington, they continued in earnest. He was definitely a very active voyeur when he found employment as a builder's labourer at a large housing development in Birmingham, where he moved down to in 1957. By then, Bernard acquired the nickname Aki. I don't know where Aki stems from, really, but his voyeurism was established and indeed common knowledge amongst his colleagues. Graffiti was later found nearby to his lodgings, testifying as to Aki Burn the window peeper. Feeling unable to approach girls, probably a good thing too really if he fantasised about raping and horrifically mutilating and murdering every girl that he encountered, Burn got his sexual kicks through spying on women undressing. He admittedly had a multitude of properties around the Edgebaston area where he would stop by and spy on women through the windows, but his favoured venue he found to be the hostel just a mere 400 yards from his lodgings, where he'd been watching women undressing through their windows for a good year, and had been caught inside the premises at least twice before the night of the 23rd of December 1959. He already seemed like a slow-burning fuse, and on that afternoon, the Wednesday before Christmas, as he headed drunkenly home, he found himself in Wheelie's Road, by this time in darkness. Burns spotted a lone female heading into the grounds of the YWCA, and the window peeper decided to head in there himself for a peep. The rest, as we've heard, is the proper stuff of nightmares, and his slow-burning fuse finally led to an explosion. This is a horrific and sad crime, isn't it? You have a quiet young woman who by all accounts kept to herself, had some unfortunate hardships in her life and was just kind of getting over these and starting again to be then chosen at random for death by a walking time bomb whose dark mind was clearly building up to commit such horror. And it is horror indeed what Byrne did. I mean, yet despite the terrible and sadistic fantasies that he'd had for many years... I do believe Stephanie was the only person that he'd killed. The killings got all the hallmarks of a disorganised killer and the activities and bloodlust of the crime says to me that this is someone who's never done something of this magnitude before so will just try everything, whatever comes to him, to see what he enjoys the most. Almost like an experimentation. It was an act he'd undoubtedly been building up to for a long period of time and his fuse just really finally had run out. 
and I don't doubt that Byrne would have gone on to commit such horror again if he'd been left unchallenged, perhaps even worse atrocities, and if you can imagine anything topping what he'd done there. I mean, just what would he have done to Margaret, do you think, had he managed to knock her unconscious with his bloodlust not already satisfied, but now full on? It's a scary thought indeed, that, isn't it? And who knows how many times he would have done it again, and how many devastated families like Stephanie's that he would have left in his wake. What a thing to come to terms with that must have been. Forever onwards, the circumstances of Stephanie's death must have haunted her poor family for the remainder of their lives. I mean, it possibly even may still. At least, even if Byrne did escape the hangman for his crimes due to his mental state at the time of the killing being a legal grey area, he was to spend the next 33 years of his life locked away for his crime and certainly for the safety of the public, although there's no way to determine how much of the sentence was spent in a prison facility against him being in a psychiatric one. He was then released in the early 1990s, as we said, but was to be recalled six years later for what must have either been a breach of life licensing conditions or his even further mental deterioration. Either way, there still has to have been some serious issues there. I thought it was a terrible, really disturbing crime this one, and I've probably not even scratched the surface of what fully happened in that room. Necrophilia, decapitation, mutilation, attempted cannibalism, and that's only what was made public, and even some of that was years later. He was in there for a full hour, doing exactly who knows what, a full hour. That's the proper stuff of nightmares indeed, isn't it? What are your thoughts about the case of the horrific murder of Stephanie Baird? Should Byrne have hung for his crime, spent his life in prison for it, or should he have been committed to a psychiatric facility immediately upon conviction? Was this a familiar case to anybody as well? The circumstances surely dictate that this should be an infamous one, Yet I don't think it's one that will be too familiar, and of course, that's what we seek to put out on the show here. Over the monster that was Patrick Byrne, please remember Stephanie and all who were affected by Byrne's crime as well as a result of this. Not just a devastated family, but this Margaret also, and of course, this Byrne's own family. Families of the perpetrator are often the forgotten ones who suffer in any of the cases that we cover on the show, aren't they? You can head over to the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group thread to air your views on the episode should you wish. I always like and enjoy seeing some debate on what people think and hopefully my own thoughts concerning the case have come across through the episode. I know this one's been horrendous to hear about and the discretion advised was fully warranted this week I thought. By all means please get in touch through the show's social media links should you wish to discuss and please check out some of the images concerning the case on the show's Instagram page. There are pictures of Stephanie, the scene of the crime, and Byrne himself will all be up there. I'd also like to remind and invite any listeners who fancy researching and writing up a case that they think would be a good fit for a future episode of the show. Please do. You can get me through Twitter, Facebook, Gmail, wherever. I'm wrapping up the True Crime Enthusiast podcast for this week with that, but I shall be back next week with a celebrated case that I've long been planning for an episode of the show, but I hope you can all join me for then. Thank you very much for joining me this week though guys. Until we speak next, I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.